What's happening now, baby? Well, some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. What? Mother's interrupted the course of our journey. Why? Yeah. She's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. Like what? Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon that uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. SOS. I don't know. Human. Hello and welcome to Screen Run. I'm the Lady One and I'm here with Chris Scalza. Screen Run is the show where Chris and I discuss the works of one particular director, artist, or franchise. And here we are with season two, our franchise is Alien. Sweet. <laughs> okay, so we're starting. We're starting at the beginning. I think that's where we're supposed to start. I think so. Uh, that's usually the best thing to do. So should we talk about what the film is actually about? Yeah. Very little known sci-fi horror film. Not yeah. a lot of people know about it. It's from Such 1979. <laughs> Second film from a gentleman named Ridley Scott. Again, not well known. <laughs> and uh, so basically written by Dan O'Bannon, who people in the horror community know very well. Mm. Mr. O'Bannon writes this film. He adapts the story with his buddy, Ronald Shusset. And basically what we have here is space truckers. We have a... Bunch of guys, they're miners, they're bringing back something precious to the earth, mm-hmm. working for a corporation, and on their way back, they are awoken out of their hypersleep by a, I would say it's not quite an emergency, but a beacon, some kind of beacon, and they are tasked in their contracts to go investigate what that beacon is. What's, it could be alien life form, for all we know, mm-hmm. and it's basically these regular Joes going to check out what's going on on this planet on the way home and horrible, horrible things happen to them. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so gross. <laughs> it's basically a big haunted house movie in space is how yeah. I've basically described it my entire life. I don't know how much, how deep we want to get into it. Sometimes I can, it's, I don't know, how spoilerly can you get for a 40 year old film? Yeah. I think, I think, you know, we can talk about specific things as we continue on. That works for me. Right. So I'm curious then, when did you come to Alien, Ms. Juan? <laughs> what was your first experience with this? This is this is very embarrassing for me. And this is not a good foot to start on because people are going to get mad at me. Mm-hmm. But I promise I love homework and research and I'm doing it. I didn't see this movie until June 2020. Hold on. Wait, pump the bricks. June 2020. Yeah. Do you know how triggering it was to hear Ripley talk about the value of quarantine in June 2020? (laughs) I was like, listen to her, guys. But just last year, I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Is this, I don't know if this is going to blow up the show right now. (laughs) People are going to just say, what? Uh, Have you seen any of the films in this franchise, including the AVPs? Okay. The first Alien movie I ever saw was Alien vs. Predator. (laughs) and i saw it on tv without knowing what it was it just like Mm -hmm. was on tbs one night when i was at my friend's house i i was glued to the couch people were coming in and out they're like you want to go play beer pong you want to go hang out i'm like no 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 no. i'm watching this movie they're like what is i was like i don't know i'm just watching this movie and i really enjoyed it and that was the first movie i saw from this series (laughs) let's let's set our markers yeah which ones (laughs) haven't you seen 
at this point, at the point of recording this first episode, the only ones I have seen are AVP, Alien, and Aliens. Okay. So you've seen what are commonly accepted as the two best films in the franchise. Yes. Of course, we're talking about Alien and then Alien vs. Predator. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So this is going to be a big event for you. I've seen everything, all the films in the franchise. I have seen this film particularly dozens of times. All right, but I don't <laughs> want to step on on the uh, the lead there. So you just saw it uh, June of 2020. Correct. What prompted you? What was the big, uh, what brought you to this classic of science fiction horror? Well, I was personally embarrassed for a really long time that I had never seen it. I was obviously very familiar with the imagery from the movie. It It is culturally significant absolutely so i knew things about it Mm. um i went in a haunted house at universal studios once that was themed around it that was very cool but i had just never seen it i i'm famously pretty much a fraidy cat and i'm scared of everything and i was like i don't want to see this scary movie Mm. and in 2019 when it was the 40th anniversary i was like all right i'm gonna do this and then i just couldn't track them down and then hbo max came into existence and they were on there so I knocked it out then. <laughs> Had you seen the chestburster scene prior to that? Because just like you say, that's a very culturally significant moment yeah. in cinema where it's one of those things where you would be aware of it and possibly even seen it without actually mm-hmm. watching the film. So kind of. I hadn't seen it in its like true cut, mm-hmm. but I had seen, I knew what it was, sure. but I hadn't seen it per se. Man, that's one of those moments. There's a few moments in your cinematic going life where you wish you could have experienced that in the theater for the first time with the rest of the audience, right? Like like Psycho is one of those, right? Where you wish you could have been there. That that chest burster scene is one of those moments for me. Yeah, I, I feel like if I had a time machine, all I would do with it is travel throughout history to be an opening night of incredible movies. Selfishly, that's what I would do with a time machine. I just would want to be in the room to hear the first time an audience sees something like that. That'd be amazing. All right, so it's on the record. Juan is <laughs> pro-Hitler. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How do we come out of that one? <laughs> so I honestly can't remember the first time I watched this film. I cannot remember. I no. think I'd seen bits and pieces of it as a kid sitting through the rails of the stairwell, you know, and the stairs yeah. going upstairs when my parents were watching it. I have vivid memories of that with The Shining. Ooh. And I do remember seeing parts of this. I know I did because I actually had the alien toy that came out a little <laughs> bit after the film was released, which actually glue in the dark. And mm-hmm. if you press the uh, head in the back, the mouth would shoot out the toy mm-hmm. and it scared the daylights out of my sister. <laughs> so we had to throw it away. Oh no! Which kills me. Ugh, I mean, I think I see so it on sad. eBay for like four or five hundred bucks now, or something like that, which is not a crazy amount of money. Not that I would it's sell it likely not. anyway. But still, Alien has become for me at the tender age I am now of twenty-two, and it really for me. There's a set group of films that I probably watch uh, a few times a year, and Alien is one of those movies. Well, I'll yeah. watch it probably two, three times a year at some point, I'll just get the urge to watch it because I think it is a perfectly constructed film. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it is top-notch science fiction horror. It's It takes all these different tropes that we're familiar with previously, and Ridley Scott just executes them perfectly by expanding mm-hmm. basically this B-movie yeah. into this A-list, top-shelf thriller. So what were your what would you experience? What what are your thoughts on Alien? Because clearly I think I'm <laughs> expressed that I rather enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's okay. No, it's it's amazing. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I was just so on edge. Mm-hmm. Just like my hands were sweating. I was like just completely glued to the screen. Didn't like want to even get up to like go to the bathroom. I was like, I can't pause it. I can't like, that's wrong. I just have to sit through this. Like I was completely mesmerized. It was, I I had no idea the experience I was in for. I just knew the highlights. I was like, yeah, yeah, there's an alien. It does this. It does that. I had no idea what like the actual viewing experience of it was. So I'm curious, break it down then. What is kind of the background and the production of this film. What do you what do you have to share with us? Oh my gosh, so many things. So many things. So and and jump in here as you know more about what I'm about to talk about. I have no problem you... hearing the sound of my own voice. <laughs> so, uh you you mentioned him earlier. Good old Dan. Dan mm-hmm. Bannon. We have no alien without him because the original script that this came from is what he wrote that was called Memory which was called that because in his story, when the astronauts went to the planet and then they left the planet, they started losing their memories and he was kind of stuck and he wasn't really sure where to go with it. But the first 30 pages of that script are alien. And Dan was just obsessed with sci-fi as a kid. And there's a lot of things that he loved, like as a kid, when he was starting to get into movies, Seeds of Jupiter, HP Lovecraft, it, the terror from outer space, Planet of the Vampires, Queen of Blood, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. And um, he was just, he was really, really into making this kind of sci-fi movie. And he made a student film in 1974 called Dark Star. He worked with this guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, Chris. Um, I think his name's John, John something. Uh, John Carpenter. Plumber. Uh, that's no. ugh, so close. <laughs> no, Carpenter. Uh, yeah. That's right. I don't, I don't know if you know about him. John Electrician. Yeah, they made they made this movie together. Um, it was similar kind of to Alien, but with like some comedic beats. And Dan wanted co-director credit and John was like, nah. And uh, so they fell out and Dan went all Thanos and was like, fine, I'll do it myself. <laughs> and never really gave up on this idea. He wanted to make it. And then Star Wars happened in 1977 and Fox wanted to jump on the space train. And the script was out there. And the one of the script readers at Fox described it as Jaws in space. And like, that's how you print money, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's the late 70s and somebody says, we've got a Jaws in space script. They're all on board. It's for the for the millennials like me. That's like the equivalent of when everything <laughs> was. You know, it's die hard on a boat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the studio was all about it. And uh, it was time to, time to start making this movie. But was it easy? Did it just all come together magically, Chris? Sadly, no. Oh, yeah. Following the story of who came involved, where, when, how, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty wild. But as far as the core of the story and, and our creature, the inspiration for that came from Dan's struggle with Crohn's disease. That's why he wanted the alien to be implanted in their stomach. It's like this personal source of pain and torture for him. So Crohn's disease plus the concept of parasitic wasps uh, equals alien. The creature design 
that he was interested in came from H.R. Giger, specifically mm-hmm. his work, the Necronomicon, as well as some Lovecraft stuff. H.R. Giger was also into that. And when they were going to make this movie, Dan was like, Giger's got to be the creature guy. Has to be. But then the studio balked, right? Because yeah, they they're paid like, him, what, a couple grand to paint <laughs> some stuff to kind of come yeah. up with some of the ideas. Yeah. The studio got it and they're like, this guy's insane. Yeah. We can't, put, like, it on the, is... we can't put that on the screen. No, they're like, this is sexual. This is disturbing. This is terrifying. We we don't like this. And Fox was like, nah, you got to go. There goes Giger. And the director who was on the project at the time, Walter Hill, the same time this is falling apart, he pieces out to go make the Warriors. Now we've got Fox who needs a new director. And they they go find who? I don't know. This this other guy. I don't know. Uh, Ridley Scott. And he gets a hold of the script and dude storyboards the entire thing. The whole movie storyboards it. And Fox sees that and they just they go ahead and casually double the budget from about $4 million to $8 million, just throwing money at him. Like, okay, you want to do this? And uh, Ridley Scott loved the original design. And then we get Geeker back on board. That was fantastic. And one of my favorite little anecdotes, too, about the film is that initially they were going to try and sell it to Roger Corman. And they were going to make that film, but there was obviously out of a much smaller budget. Yes. And they went to like Tom Skerritt, who ends uh-huh. up playing the captain, Dallas, right? And he's like, yes. I'm not I'm not interested in that film. No. It's going to be too small. It's too small a budget. And even Corman allegedly then pushes them and says, listen, I can make this movie, mm-hmm. but I shouldn't make this movie. Yeah. You should really go bigger with this. Yeah. And then, as you said, Walter Hill and his company, Brandywine Productions, get involved. And I think one of the most interesting things about it is Hill is not a science fiction horror kind of guy. He isn't. That's not what he does. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the big loggerheads that him and O'Bannon would come to, right? Because not only did O'Bannon have a particular vision for this, but -hmm. you had a guy who doesn't really get that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you want a director who can have that kind of vision. And Ridley Scott had just done The Duelists, mm-hmm. his first film. Remember, Alien is only his second movie. Crazy. And you're right, though. It was his storyboarding of the film that got the studio to say, listen, I, th- I think we got something here. And yeah. then he was all in on Giger's work as yeah. well. And like you said, bringing him back on board. If you look at, if you, you can look it up online, some of the designs. For the alien, or just yeah. some of just just bad. Some are interesting, but nothing compares to what Giger came up with. It's just that walking nightmare that he was mm-hmm. able to create. One of my favorite stories about Giger too is that supposedly he has like so he was engaged, and his mm-hmm. fiance killed herself, and he kept her skeleton. Yeah. And at some point too, he's at a party with like the producers. You know, and, and he offers them like, uh, what does he offer them? Some kind of hallucinogen, basically. <laughs> and it's basically it's because he's haunted by the visions in his head, and it terrifies him. So it helps with him. It would help him regulate himself. Yeah. And I just can you imagine that kind of artist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and him. And then they borrow stuff from like Francis Bacon, the pain, the, the painter. If yes. you look at his work. You want to talk about yeah. nightmare stuff as well. Yeah. That's where they came up with a design for the chest burster itself yes. was from that bacon painting, the uh, crucifixion. Yeah. I mean, it's so much fascinating stuff. Please tell me more. 
like you were you were saying about the creature design, we've got no CGI here. We've mm. got no scale models here. Everything is to size. Everything is exactly what you see. And as real and gross, the way the special effects were were worked on was they had actual like pieces of squid, different animal entrails in in making things look like that's why this the effects are so like viscous and gross is because they're really gross. They said it smelled on set when they were filming those days because it was just like rotting flesh that they're using in this. Yes, yeah, so the chestburster scene they use actual awful from an avatar. And then the scene when they do the autopsy on the face hugger is like clams and different types of seafood. I always thought in like a rubber shell, I always thought that was just stuff they created. It was all rubber and fake. But looking at it now with that knowledge, you're like, holy cow, Jesus. And that's what makes it so effective. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, not reliance, but it's the trust in practical effects that is just, it's what makes the experience of this movie. And then you add on top of that, that almost the entire movie is like handheld camera work, like on Ridley Scott's shoulder. Mm. Uh, the camera never really stops moving. So you never feel safe. Like even just establishing shots, He's panning across. He's walking down hallways. It's literally everything start to finish, starting with an absolutely wild script and insane creature design, all the way to finishing it with handheld camera work and like squid parts and full size, seven foot tall man in an alien suit. Yeah, a real dude. Not a puppet, yeah. not an animated thing, nothing. Yeah, a real, real tall dude. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's on his uh, resume, on his CV. <laughs> I think I want to touch on briefly on what you just said too. Giger did some of the set design, some other artists that brought stuff into as well. Some people who work with Yodorowsky on his failed Dune project. Mm-hmm. There's a great documentary on that. If you haven't seen it, Yodorowsky's Dune, you should definitely check out. And uh, one of the touches though that Scott did in this film that I absolutely love that just really helped the whole feel and vibe of the film is particularly like in the basically in the opening of the film. All the little touches, like yeah. uh, the the rustling of papers, mm-hmm. the when the the mission or the message comes through to wake everybody up, how it reflects on the safety kind of you know security mm-hmm. crash helmet things, the moment when the doors open to the sleeping chamber and there's just that subtle rush of air that moves the coats, mm-hmm. right? I mean, all these little touches. That add to this sense, as you said, the constant camera movement. So you're always a little uneasy, wondering what's mm-hmm. around every corner. How he, how Scott selects his shots, how he frames everybody. Sometimes when it, like he a lot of times uses his wide-angle lens to get everybody in the shot right, mm-hmm. and then with some great blocking and different positioning. And when he needs to, he isolates particular people for particular reasons, particularly uh, Ash is isolated a lot because you realize as the film progresses, he is up to something else entirely. Yeah. And all of these great choices uh, that comprise this film, just fascinating. Yeah. I I have to say, we talked about, since I saw this so so embarrassingly late in life, I knew the chestburster was going to happen. I didn't know Ash's head was going to get knocked off. I Mm -hmm. freaked out. I absolutely freaked out. I had no idea what was coming. And I realized that might make me sound like a dummy, but 
I was like, holy shit, what's going on? Like I was just, it, it got me. I did not, I did not know what to do. I was so confused. And if you watch it again afterwards oh, yeah. and you focus on him, you oh, can see yeah. the entire time that something is up with him. When he looks at Kane and John Hurt's character, when they're having, after the, he's woken up and the facehugger has died, his reactions, his little side eyes, right? All these little, because he knows what's about to happen. Like all of these different moments like that, it's just terrifying and chilling yeah. and rewatching and you can focus on his character's reactions. If I have any complaints with the film, it's just a limitation of the technology at the time is yeah. the interrogation of Ash when they kind of bring him back initially, mm-hmm. the model, yeah. and then this really hard cut to where they go from the model to Ian Holm again. Mm-hmm. It's blatantly obvious oh that, that it's bad. It is. But it it's is. just a limitation of the technology, I think, at the time. And, you, you, yeah. you, you know, you're totally willing to let that go. Yeah. That's really like the only thing that would tell you when this movie is from. Because other than that, it looks incredible. But yeah, I I watched it when we were getting ready to record this. I watched it back to back, like one day apart. I was like, mm-hmm. let's just go ahead again. And the second time I, I watched it again, all I did was watch Ash. And I was just like, you bastard. Like the entire time I was just getting so angry at him. I was just like, oh my God. Bilbo Baggins, how could you? So (laughs) wrong. Like, he's heartless, but like literally heartless. Yeah. (laughs) I know that one of the great things about this film, I think, is something that Dan O'Bannon had no input in whatsoever. And that is the shifting of their jobs and of who they are. Mm -hmm. So initially, they were basically just astronauts. Yeah. And Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, and Walter Hill took the script. They actually were not impressed with the script at all and basically rewrote the whole damn thing. And they kept the key moments, mm-hmm. uh, but then changed everybody's names yeah. and then added in the space truckers part, yeah. which I think for this, for me, is a stroke of genius. Absolutely. When you input all of this, the, the labor stuff, the mm-hmm. corporate space mining, right? All of this stuff, that's for me is what makes the film work because it adds an air of believability to it. Yeah. This is not a J.J. Abrams-esque Apple Star Trek, you know, uh, future. This mm-hmm. is just a blue collar bunch of people trying to do what they can. That exploited worker angle that actually carries through through basically the entire series. Mm-hmm. I I don't remember if it's in the AVP stuff. I don't think it is. Nor is it important. <laughs> Is, is fascinating. And when you look at it, too, at the time the film was made, we were right basically at the height of the collapse of labor in this country. Yeah. And at least not. It was imminent. And looking through it through that prism, I think, adds another an angle where you now you're not only contending with this beast who exists just to kill mm-hmm. and to survive and, pro- and to propagate its species, but you're dealing with an evil, ruthless corporation who now looks at this as a bioweapon that they can exploit at the cost of anything. Mm-hmm. And the way that Ridley Scott handles that, it's not, it doesn't beat you over the head with it. It, a, it, it provides kind of the scaffolding, I think, for the film, but it adds an extra dimension of darkness for the film that I really appreciated. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, it truly is subtext about blue-collar workers what that means for humanity 
colonization and the downsides of exploring like it all of that's there mm. but you're not paying attention to it because you're just scared but it's there and then you can watch it again and you're like oh my god there's so much here like the arguments between the like who's gonna get their share and the whole fact that they have to go do this it's in your contract you have to go do it they don't want to go do this this is like the equivalent of when you're going for a job and it says like miscellaneous duties as necessary, this is the worst case scenario for that (laughs) sentence. Like (laughs) this is, it's covered and it's in there and they have to do it, but they're like, that's not dude, that's not what we're here for. We're here. We got the hall. We're going to go back. I want to get paid. And they're like, Nope, you got to go do this. And, and it's like, it's just so evil that that's the setup. Like, like you said, it just makes it so much more believable. And also like your, upset about it so let's talk about that let's talk about the subliminal stuff in this film and why the film i think maybe strikes a chord with men and how it possibly deals subliminal subconsciously with male guilt and that Mm -hmm. is how the alien attacks you and what it does yeah so this is a very overtly in some ways uh what a a i don't want to say sexual film but it's more about rape Really. And now the male is the one that experiences the loss of control, the loss of power. And they are impregnated by this. Now, granted, it's just happenstance, I guess, that it was Cain that was assaulted. Right? It could have been uh, any uh, anybody else. Mm-hmm. But still, it is the man who suffers the, the penetration in this film. The inwards right. and outwards, I guess. Yeah. But still, uh, I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this film that the rest of the movies don't really dwell on it as much. But I think for this one, it seems to be more obvious to me. The other films, I think, focus more on the gore and the alien and the monster. Well, this mm-hmm. one really seems to me to get the subtext of yeah. the of that assault. What do you think about that? Yeah, that. so that's a really interesting thing to talk about because... I've read that and I've understood that to be true, but it was never part of my viewing experience Mm. because I don't relate to that. Like every movie I watch, the character I can identify with, that's the fear. That's the fear walking to my car in a parking garage. Like that's just part of my day-to-day life. Like real talk. That that is what it's like to just be a woman out in the world is like, you're like, oh shit, I gotta worry about this all the time. So to see it like actualized in a movie is just da- like, that's just it. It doesn't really do anything. It doesn't bring anything extra out in me, but I could absolutely see how it would be. It's this extra level of like what's happening and taking your power away. And and it's really, it's a unique experience for me to just like hear about it. And I understand it, but mm. it was never part of my viewing experience because it's just not, that's not unique for me. So I think I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I agree. And I think what the most interesting things about it is that when you review all of this behind the scenes stuff, these documentaries, all of these mm-hmm. things, it's you get the impression, no impression at all from the creators that they saw that, that they realized what they were doing, I feel, that it's it's not it's until the people who've watched the film that comment on it, that great documentary memory which celebrates the anniversary. They really get into it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's that much time spent on it by the other people. It's more about 
this great scene that's going to grip the audiences without, I think, the subconscious reality of what they're actually watching. Yeah. It's really interesting because you kind of do have to wonder, like, how much of that in the story is intentional and how much of it was just, like, somebody's subconscious, like, writing Mm -hmm. it in. Like, Dan O'Bannon's writing in, it's in your stomach because he's dealing with Crohn's disease his whole life. Like, what else, what else was going on with people to, (laughs) to bring something like this into the movie? Like, it's fascinating. It really is. So to follow that thread, Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on the fact that the character of Ripley was originally written for a man? That's why she's so awesome. (laughs) Like, that's, that's why she's written to say what she thinks, tell people what to do, have agency go go against people when she's trying to do the right thing and and none of it is like for me like it's that's why I, she's one of the greatest female protagonists in cinema truly she just is and i i think it is a real bummer to me to think about she's probably that awesome because she wasn't written to be a woman she was written to be a character and yeah. i mean we'll we'll get into this more next time but like it's ripley and it's sarah connor and <laughs> like we'll we'll talk about uh james cameron when we talk about aliens but the people behind it weren't trying to write women mm-hmm. they're just trying to write characters and those well i know the best, the best it ones. was walter hill and his crew that wanted to do that because i thought there'd be a, a wider appeal by bringing in by making one or two of the characters of women because originally none of them were yeah and then i think through going through and and casting they kind of decided like there's famously a note in the the production like well gender neutral like either any character could go either way it wasn't it, it's not a factor in the story and yeah, I, I think I, that's why it's so powerful for her that's true i think that's a great great point and i i, I thought i'd read at one point that lambert was supposed to be trans but i i haven't been able to find anything to really nail that down that that's true i thought it was like there's a picture of her at one point maybe in it's in aliens when they show the pictures of the crew. Yeah. I, so maybe we'll have I to look out for that. We can check it in that one, but I believe what there is, is they had a mention of like gender reassignment, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like original gender, current gender or something to that effect. And I think they just were like, eh, that'll confuse people. Let's just, let's just stay out of it. Fair enough. So let's talk about that. I think this film is like perfectly cast. Yeah. And Scott's a believer in that, that basically, you know, if you, if you get your, your cast right, more than half your work is done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's clearly the case with this as well. I mean, every character is absolutely brilliant in this thing. You, you, I mean, Yafakoto improves everything he shows up in, right? If I see Kodo's name, I know I'm going to get a really interesting experience out of him. Scare too. I love how he plays Dallas yeah. as the captain of the Stroma. That is constantly put upon by the crew he's not your captain kirk your hero type Mm -hmm. at all right he's just constantly getting undercut by his subordinates yeah and tired boss yeah he's just tired and he's like guys can you stop making this more complicated for me all right fine i gotta go deal with the computer i gotta go deal with the stuff that only i can do he's exhausted Mm -hmm. yeah just all of the characters they're just and they're all older too which i feel like is is pretty interesting that we we don't have you know a spaceship full of like 20 year old hotties like 
we we don't like there. No Chris Pratt, you know, Scarlett Johansson's in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that's if they're if they were making this movie now, well, you know what would happen? Um, yeah, just we'd get some young, pretty people, and you know, not saying that the cast is not attractive. I'm just they're older than you know what you would be seeing. Again, they're just blue collar, everyday kind of people dealing mm-hmm. with extreme situations. Yeah. The last thing I would talk about, I think, for the film, for me, one of my absolute favorite things about it is Jerry Goldsmith's score. So I'm a big score Ooh, guy. I love right. music and films. Yeah. And Jerry Goldsmith's score in this is an all-timer for me. It's one of the best I've heard. And what you find out once you get into it is that his score was basically, I don't know, I'd say shredded. Goldsmith had created this lush, romantic kind of big score that had these horror elements in it. It it totally did. Yeah. But he did this kind of traditional score. Listen, listen to the Star Trek the motion picture score, right? That's kind of the, what you're going to what you're going to get. And Scott was like, "No." So what they they basically he wanted more of an ambient score for the film. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say it, but I think he's right. Yeah. Because you can listen to his entire score online. You can listen on YouTube. I think if like Apple Music's got the whole thing. There was a limited edition three disc set, I think, of the whole of his original score, the actual soundtrack, some recues, and then some deleted music as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't buy it anymore. I'm sure you can get it on eBay for like sixty, eighty hundred dollars. But mm-hmm. it's available like I think on Apple Music and some other services. So you can listen to it and it's beautiful, but it's not it's just not right. And yeah. when you listen to the score that's from the film, the Scott's more ambient piece. And what he actually did too, so when they scored the film, they used some of his older works. So what happens is he presents the score and they used one from another previous film. And they're like, you know what? We actually like this other version better, this temporary cue instead. So we're going to stick with that. And Goldsmith was furious about it. He's like, what are you talking about? I wrote this thing. Even the opening yeah. theme for the film. He spent like, what, a whole day or five days working on it? And Scott's like, no, no, it's it's too much. (laughs) So he whips something up like in five hours, something like that, in no time. And Scott's like, that's it. And Goldsmith's like, come on, man. (laughs) So there was a bit of an issue with that. But in the end, I appreciate his full score, which you can listen to. But I think Scott was right. And the abbreviated, more ambient version works much better for the film that Scott made. Yeah. Well, speaking of decisions that Scott made that were right, the original cut of the movie, mm-hmm. that's the one. Like, the, the director's cut exists. It is out there. It is one minute shorter than the original cut. And if you hear Ridley Scott's thoughts on it, he essentially is like, yeah, I, tr- I tried to change it, but it, it, was, it was perfect the way it was. Like, <laughs> he, he agrees that the optimal cut of this movie is the original. You know, he just kind of shimmied some things around for the director's cut but yeah there's a couple key things right so there's a scene where you hear the beacon that film that scene is cut a little bit yeah uh then there's the scene where brick gets killed that runs a few seconds longer Mm -hmm. with parker looking up into the chains and then he gets actually blood rained down upon him that part's cut out uh there's a scene with lambert and ripley actually have an issue so they actually have a confrontation Mm -hmm. Because yeah. remember, Ripley refuses initially to let them in. And yes. there's actually another scene later on where there's still some tension between the two of them. But mm-hmm. I think the big moment, the big cut, 
uh, is you find out Dallas's fate. You yeah. see what happened to him. Because remember in the film, he just disappears. The alien reaches out to him and it cuts to black and we go back to the crew and that's it. Yeah, we never know. And they say, you know, there's no blood, there's no body. We don't know. So you, you actually get to see what happens to him. And though I think it's an interesting scene, yeah. and again, something you got to just look up online and watch. Yes, you uh, It's interesting. <laughs> I think they were right to cut it because when yeah. the scene exists in the film, clock's ticking, baby. And then yeah. we have this like minute long thing where you see what happened and then and then Ripley makes her choice and it does kind of trip up the pacing of the film. It slows mm-hmm. it down at a key moment. So though it's interesting, I think narratively, pacing wise, it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he knew what he was doing. <laughs> I love that given given all the the old footage to to work with, given everything he had, and they're like, you know, essentially no runtime limits on this. Fill the DVD, Mr. Scott. And he's just like, I don't know. This is the best I can come up with. It's a minute shorter. <laughs> Let me tell you this. I've owned this on VHS, on DVD, and on mm. Blu-ray. And yeah. I bought the 4K. You love your physical media. And let me tell you, the 4K version of this film is stunning. Yeah. It looks so good. I saw things I'd never seen before. The Ooh. definition of the picture, the colors, the thing is vibrant. It's Even though it's dark, everything kind of just jumps off the screen. It's, it's one of the best 4K discs I've seen from something this old. The, yeah. the uh, remastered transfer of this thing is just gorgeous. So if you're on the fence on upgrading your Alien to 4K, do it. Don't even think twice about it. It looks fantastic. <laughs> and it does feature all the legacy special features, uh, mm-hmm. which includes the, I think, what, the 1999 commentary with Scott and then one from 03, which is Scott and the crew, which clearly, I think, sound just like interviews that are just yeah. kind of spliced together to make a commentary. But one of my favorite things about the commentary from 99 is clearly Scott is smoking and drinking the whole time. There's a few times where I hear him like, you know, like he's talking, about, he's <laughs> puffing on his cigar. Yeah. And it, it's, it's pretty funny. Very informative track and lots of interesting information that get pulled out of that. But again, I'm telling you folks, if you're on the fence, buy it. Fantastic. You heard it. That's the only one that's in 4K. It's only UHD release so far outside of, hmm. you know, Prometheus, I think, in Covenant. I have what? Covenant in 4K. I have not watched that 4K yet. So we'll report that, that when we get yet. to it. See? I know. I got I got shit to do. Holla. Very excited. As the kids say. Kids say that now? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Aren't you 22? Exactly. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So Totes. if you say it. Wait, wait, wait. Before... Alien is poggers. <laughs> that's it, right? It's poggers. That's the I thing, no man. Idea. It's poggers. <laughs> that means good. Really good. <laughs> okay. I didn't talk about this before. Do we want to do a favorite performance? I put that in my notes. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I, I have one. Okay. Good. Good. Just making sure. I even have a clip for it. I'm not messing around, sister. Of course you do. Okay. Well, go ahead then. What is your favorite performance in Alien? It's this one. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. It's 
survival. They were clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I don't, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. So why that works so well, why Ian Holm is my selection as Ash, is at the end of that clip, there's the slightest smile. (gasps) And it turns out in the end, there's really only one villain, and it's Ash. And I think April Wolf, I believe it was April Wolf, in the memory documentary points it out too that you can clearly tell the way he treats Ripley, how he interacts with her, that there is some patriarchal stuff hardwired into Ash where he has like no respect for her whatsoever. He cuts her off all the time. You know, he's dismissive of her all the time. He does try and kill her. (laughs) So, but yeah, I think out of all the performances in this film, especially after this rewatch, and again, a beautiful 4K. It's his performance that stood out for me at the end. It was that smile at the end of that clip that pushed him over. I think Ripley is your obvious answer. Yeah. But for me, I got to go Ian Holm. Yeah. But I think that last line, that's my favorite line in the whole movie. Mm. Like, it's just, oh, like, I, I wrote it down in my, my notes. I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. It's, it's so good. He's fantastic in it. I love to hate him. And and yeah, you're right. Um, Ripley is the obvious choice, and that's what I went with. But my notes literally say Ripley, duh. But Ash is a close second. Those mm-hmm. are my notes. It's so it's really hard to choose, but just everything that she did in in her performance, I just loved it. So Ripley is my favorite, but I'm glad that you picked Ash because I struggled. Listen, when I say obvious too, I'm not being dismissive. Sigourney <laughs> Weaver is fantastic in this film. Yeah. She is the driving heart of the movie. Yeah. And it I just don't think it works without Sigourney Weaver. I'm not mm-hmm. even talking Ripley as a role. I'm meaning her performance in this film. Yeah. What she does. The competency, mm-hmm. the strength, the force, everything she brings to it, the just a, the presence she has in the role. It's really top shelf stuff. And yeah. uh, that's why I think it's obvious. But I want to say that, but I don't mean it dismissively. I think yeah. it's a great choice. Yeah. I'm honestly spoiled for choice in this film. Everybody yeah. is incredible. Like, Absolutely. I mean, John Hurt, Harry Dean Stanton, Veronica Cartwright, Tom Skerritt, and of course, Yafik Kodo. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. It's one of the why the thing works so well. Mm-hmm. There are rare occasions in cinema. I think I said this in the, in the opening at some point where everything just comes together perfectly. Yeah. And this is one of those moments. So I think you can guess my egg score. How many eggs are you giving it, Chris? I have to go five. Gotta go five. I'm going five. Five eggs. There you go. I mean, if if you disagree at me, tell me why. I how could you not? Yeah. Hit her up on Twitter. Don't bother me. I'm very busy. <laughs> at screen run. Then you'll have to get the notification too, but I'm fine with that. I'm uh, sure you are. Or, yeah. you know, write us a long form essay. We yes. can hit us up too at what screenrunfun at gmail.com. We'd love to hear yes. from you there as well. <laughs> we did it. That's our first alien movie. Here, this is for you. Snoochie poochies. <laughs> you did it. We did it. We're back for season two. 
We did it. Episode so one is yes. in the books. So yes. what's coming up next? Are we going to go chronologically here? Actually going to go by release date? Or do you want to just go like hit a random button? <laughs> just do a different one next. What do you want to do? Uh, let's let's stay on release date because I already made a spreadsheet and okay. I love my spreadsheet. So I respect that. We're going for some more good here. We're going for aliens. Sweet. That's right. And we'll have a special guest because that's what we're going to do, folks. Guests yeah. going forward. I know you missed mom and dad, so we <laughs> wanted to have some time directly with just mm-hmm. the three of us, just all of us yeah. together. Yeah. But we're going to bring it, you know, but we like to, you know, like to have a little fun. It's going to be, yeah. it's, like a, it's like a key party of a movie podcast. <laughs> and next week, my co-host at the first run, uh, Matt Howell, will be joining us for one of his all-time favorite films, Aliens. I can't wait. Well, as we said, you can hit us up at Screen Run on Twitter, at the Lady Juan for yes. her directly. And I am at... What am I at? CG Scalzo? I don't even remember. CG Scalzo. Yes, that I works. know your Twitter name. Yes. And of course, like we said, screenrunfun at gmail.com. Go to the site, screenrun.fun. Yes. Listen to more Kevin Smith goodness. You get season one there as well. Yeah. Go back and reflect on the journey that brought us here. Subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. So soon. It's got a wonderful defense mechanism. You don't dare kill it.